Hey y'all, I'm Rachel Garbus, and this is Out Down South. We're back after a summer hiatus with more stories from the Atlanta LGBTQ History Project. Each Out Down South episode features selections from oral history interviews with some of the most interesting and inspiring LGBTQ Southerners we know. My co-host, Sam Landis, is traveling this week, so I'm holding down the big gay fort on my own. Bear with me. Today's episode features Marianne Adams, a lifelong activist and organizer, a brilliant academic, and a beloved member of the Atlanta lesbian community. Marianne is founder and executive director of Zami Nobla, the National Organization of Black Lesbians on Aging, which provides resources to aid the coming-of-age process for Black lesbians over the age of 40. She founded the Audre Lorde Scholarship Fund, which awards funding to LGBTQ scholars of color. A 16-year breast cancer survivor, Marianne is also an advisory board member at Emory University Winship's Cancer Institute. She serves on Atlanta Mayor's LGBTQ Plus Advisory Board, the Wharton Lab Rise Advisory Board, and is also a commissioner and board chair of the East Point Housing Authority. A social worker and public health researcher, Marianne has also led research and published scholarly articles on health and care of older Black lesbians. She has an amazing story, and we're so excited to bring it to you today. Unlike the first few episodes of Out Down South, our project did not record this oral history interview with Marianne Adams. This interview was actually recorded in 2015 as part of the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History Project, which collects oral histories and written life stories from lesbian feminists across the Southeast. The Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History Project has an amazing archive of interviews, stories, and resources about Southern lesbian and feminist history. To learn more and to explore their archive, head to slfaherstoryproject.org. We're very grateful to them for sharing their collection with us. Marianne Adams was actually interviewed for this oral history by Lorraine Fontana, who's one of our honored subjects in the Atlanta LGBTQ History Project, as well as an amazing lesbian feminist and activist in her own right. Before we dig into Marianne's story, I wanted to invite Lorraine on the pod to talk about the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History Project and her interview with her friend, Marianne. So Lorraine's here with me now. Hi, Lorraine. Hey, hey. Yeah, this is Lorraine Fontana. Um, I guess I'm here because I interviewed Marianne back in the day. Back in the day. That's uh, right. Yeah. So what was the guiding mission for the Southern Lesbian Feminist Activist History, history project. Well, the guiding mission was simply to make sure that stories of the lesbians and feminists in the South were put somewhere in history. They mm-hmm. could get into archives, that people that wanted to study it. You know, there aren't many books. There are a couple that talk about the gay South mm-hmm. and include some once in a while something about lesbians. Yeah. But really, a lot of the books, when you read them, they're about the Northeast, the East Coast, or the West Coast, and there's not a lot of stuff around the South, but a lot of women did a lot of things in the South, a lot of activism going on. Mm-hmm. So we thought, hey, you know, we're, we're here. We're the ones living in this area. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about our histories, and we'll talk about what we've done and what the people have done down here. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea of it. Well, that takes us right to the oral history interview you did with Marianne. Looks like it was back in December uh, 2015. Do you remember anything about the interview or where it took place or what it was like? Yeah, um, it was at her house. And I think I just had like a little small recorder Mm -hmm. because there weren't like cell phone things. Yeah. Um, And yeah, we just, it was very, it was very free flowing, very informal. And what I found totally important and totally interesting is how 
Yeah, you know, the people we've done interviewed, lesbians who were older lesbians, it's interesting to hear about the early times, like when could they be out, why wouldn't they be out, what were the problems that existed in their lives back then. When you have a black lesbian born in Mississippi, living in Freedom, Freedmanstown, right near Ole Miss, you're going to hear an amazing story mm -hmm. about her early life and things that were happening that we know about for the Civil Rights Movement, but that was her life that was, <laughs> was right there happening. Yeah. Um, so I was so glad we got it because it was like a double oral history. In a mm -hmm. way. Had you ever done an oral history interview when you did that? I don't remember when I did my first story core. We, you know, short ones like that. I did a couple mm. with other people, mm -hmm. but that might have been after that. Yeah. So I'm a little. Yeah. I'm not sure if I did other interviews before that. Carolyn's was after, I believe. Uh -huh. Well, I've done a lot of oral history interviews, and I think you did a really great job with this one. Thank it's you. really Thank a pleasure you. to listen to. Well, it was. I think then it's a matter of being comfortable because we just, you know, like we were friends talking, and I was when I hear something interesting, I go, "Wow, you know, tell me more about that." You know, is that mm -hmm. kind of thing? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Lorraine. Thank you. And thanks, Marianne. <laughs> thanks, Marianne. We're excited to hear more. And now, let's get to Lorraine's oral history interview with Marianne. As Lorraine mentioned, Marianne was born in 1954 in Mississippi, when the state was still deeply segregated. She was the second oldest of 10 children, and growing up, her family was quite poor, but surrounded by a community of family and neighbors that helped raise her and her siblings. She described herself as a child with very poor social skills who struggled to connect with kids her age. But that led her to form connections with other adults in the neighborhood, which instilled in her a lifelong love and respect for elder folks. Her all-black Mississippi community was also a critical site of the civil rights movement, and growing up surrounded by energetic young black activists was also deeply impactful on a young Marianne. When I was nine, I um, became acquainted with an elderly woman across the street. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I was pretty much an introvert and didn't have a lot of friends. And so I would spend my summers at Miss Savannah's house all day. She would regale me with these stories of the neighborhood and who lived there 10 years ago and who died and the kind of relationships they had. And she was one of the first black women in the community who actually had uh, property, uh, who had her own home. I lived in a community called Freemanstown, and it was a community where free blacks first settled in Oxford in North Mississippi, and it was uh, very, very close to Ole Miss, probably a mile from University of Mississippi. Uh, you could actually walk there from my neighborhood. Uh, it was a neighborhood because uh, African-Americans albeit uh, those who had achieved middle-class status at that time, were not able to buy homes in various communities in Oxford. So we all lived in the same community. The, you know, the, the preacher lived next to the teacher who lived next to the janitor who lived next to the mechanic. And, and I think for the children of the community, um, it was really a godsend. Um, because indeed we were a community, you know, my sixth grade teacher lived up the street. I could stop by her house or if I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing, uh, uh, you know, she would call me on it. Uh, so in, in that regard, um, it was very much, it takes a community to raise a child. 
And so Miss Savannah took a liking to me. Uh, she was considered the mean old woman in the neighborhood. If you walked across her yard, she'd come out with a gun. And I remember one Thanksgiving with my brothers and sisters, she came out with a gun. I said, it's me, Miss Savannah. She was like, oh, did she really like me? <laughs> she'd teach me how to make biscuits. I'd go to the store for her. And she would tell me all these stories. And um, she had uh, grown adult children at the time who were school teachers. Um, and so she was really considered a success in terms of buying property and rearing children, educating them and all of that. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I started to help her. Um, and I think that developed my love for, for elderly people. Um, and I was always really struck by how she'd been so successful and done all this. And at the end, she was very isolated. Uh, she was by herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her children would come, you know, maybe every other week to check on her. But I was essentially her only company. Um, and, and, and so I think starting to really assist her and hear these stories about the civil rights movement really ignited a fire in me. It, it ignited a desire in me to try to if not relive that, but to participate in it whenever I was, got the chance to do that. Um, and because we were so poor, the fact that she spent a lot of time with me and, and, and you know, gave me things and fed me was really a, a help to my mother at that time. So fast forward, you know, at that time I'm nine, then I'm 12, and I am... Um, this is around 66 or so. Um, there was this movement across the country uh, in terms of uh, urban renewal, revitalization. There were young civil rights activists who would come into these communities to start to mobilize and to build and train and educate. And it was also the time when there was the establishment of legal services offices across the country to help black folks and, and, uh, in terms of uh, trying to assist them with keeping their land and uh, particularly um, and trying to help them, you know, buy houses in these neighborhoods and doing things that, you know, I can't do this day, but they did back then. And so there was this influx of young, uh, vibrant activists, civil rights attorneys and social workers and teachers who moved into these communities. And so there was a young black minister, uh, Reverend Wayne Johnson, who had grown up in Oxford, but who had gone away to Indiana um, and he'd come back home and he started the Black House. And the Black House was the house that he rented. It was uh, literally next door to our school. And at the time, I went to a school called, um, uh, it was Central High School. Uh, before it was called Central High School, it was called Oxford Training School. And all the black students went to that school from first grade to 12th grade. Mm. Um, and it, so it was renamed from Oxford Training School to, to Central High School. And I remember looking at books that they had white marked out and they had colored. And so we got the hand-me-down books from Oxford High School, from Bramley Elementary, which was literally across town, which was probably about two miles away from where we were. Uh, and I remember thinking that, you know, even early on, that, you know, that just was, was something not right about that. Uh, and we also had to buy those books. So it wasn't like they were free to us, even though we had hand-me-down books. Uh, we still had to pay for those, those textbooks. Um, and 
uh, we had two white teachers at the time. We had a, 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 a algebra teacher who was male, and then we had uh, a woman who was the English teacher. I remember that. And um, when, let me just go back a bit. When I was eight years old, uh, it was when James Meredith was trying to desegregate at the University of Mississippi. Okay. And I remember that Sunday night asking my stepfather, because we could hear the gunshots. You know, what's going on? Why, we, why is somebody shooting? And he said, oh, those pecker woods, because that's what he called white people. Pecker Woods. All those pe Pecker Woods are trying to keep this black man from going to school, you know. So for me, that, that's, I mean, I associated school and you know, I knew what Pecker Woods meant. Mm -hmm. uh, and the gunshots, I wasn't quite sure why that was happening. And then the next day, uh, I walked to school. We didn't have a bus, so we walked to school. And my brother was going to skip school that day. He was 10, I was 8. So he was walking me to school. And he walked me halfway, not all the way, because he didn't want to be seen. And I remember coming up by myself and seeing all of these soldiers. I mean, and to my eight-year-old eyes, it seemed like there were a million soldiers. They were all white, and they had guns, and they were barricading like around my school. And I remember one of them said to me, little girl, there's not going to be any school today. And I remember turning and just running back. And my brother had stopped to throw rocks in the trees at the squirrels or whatever. And so he was still, I was able to catch up with him. And we went home and we didn't have school for at least a week. The our Freeman town was shut down because we had threats that yeah. they were going to bomb the school. They were going to bomb Freeman's town because we were the easy target. Everybody knew Freeman's town. Um, and I remember uh, at that time being really struck by that. Um, and then later finding out that, you know, somebody had been killed and there was a lot going on. Um, so I was growing up against a backdrop of that kind of uh, unrest, if you will, uh, that kind of civil rights movement where folks were trying to assist him in, in going to school. And so you fast forward uh, to... Um, to my being 12 and then the black house starting and then all these folks coming into town. I was really ripe for that kind of thing. Uh, I was always a reader. I was always a bookworm. I would read everything I could get my hands on. And um, at this point, um, <clears throat> you know, I'd start reading Baldwin. I'd start reading, certainly, I think James Baldwin was probably the earliest black writer I read. I read Langston Hughes. Uh, my grandmother lived in, in Water Valley, which was 30 minutes away, and we spent every single summer with her. My aunt uh, taught school, and she lived with my grandmother. And back then, she was considered an old maid. That's what they called her. <laughs> and so um, she really provided a very rich education for me. Um, in her house was the first time I really listened to classical music. She would play that for me. Um, she had Ebony Magazine, and she had Jed, and I would read those. I remember even writing the letters at Ebony Magazine. And then she bought a lot of books for me from, uh, from black authors. My aunt was a librarian at the high school. She was also the French teacher. And so um, uh, that's, she spent her time reading. I spent my time reading. We would go to the library. And so I was really introduced to all these authors at the time. And I remember she, I, she, I couldn't take the books home with me, but she would put them up on the shelf. And whenever I would come, a lot of weekends and every summer, she would get them down and I would read the same books over and over. And not just black books, but I mean, I read Little Women, all the, you know, I read 
Gulliver Travels. Uh, I mean, all of that is, is really, I had a pretty well-rounded uh, reading um, education at that time, and you know, it continued on. Inspired by the activism around her, Marianne got involved in the civil rights movement in high school. She attended Black House programs after school, reading books by H. Rapp Brown and Richard Wright, and writing for the Soul Force newspaper, which was started by the minister and activist Wayne Johnson. She worked for Johnson's co-op store, distributed the newspaper in the community, and sat in on NAACP meetings. This was the late 1960s, which was a really fertile time for civil rights activism in the Deep South, and Marianne soaked up all of it. When the first Black students at Ole Miss were attempting to form a Black student union on campus, they came to Black House to strategize with other activists, and the teenage activists were there too. She was also developing a sensibility as a feminist. She started reading Miss Magazine and Black feminist authors like Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni, and she was noticing the contradictions in the civil rights movement, which at the time was rife with sexism and misogyny. Marianne was always a really good student and a prodigious reader. The local schools and libraries desegregated when she was in high school, so she started attending the integrated Oxford High School in 11th grade and taking advantage of the bigger county library, which had been previously whites only. There, as you might have guessed, she read all the time. And when she was only 16, she was accepted to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, one of only a handful of black students on a campus that, until James Meredith desegregated it in 1962, had been entirely white. So I went to University of Mississippi, uh, 16, and I remember I knew enough to know I couldn't major in journalism and write what I wanted to write. Because at that time, I was very, very reticent. I mean, I was very politicized. At this, at this point, before I left high school, we could go to the white library. And so Dixie... That was her first name. She was at Hale Library, and they all remember me. Because I, when I went grown, I went, and she was still there. She's like, Mary, they remember me because I would order books. You know how you could order books and they would bring them from another library? I would order all these, you know, <laughs> radical black books. And they the were just at like. The Oxford Library wasn't going to carry it. Yeah? <laughs> that's right. But they would, they kind of humored me because I read. They, they appreciated that, right? And I read everything. And when I would order these books, they would just kind of, you know, because it was all white staff. And I would come in and sit there because it was also a refuge for me because I didn't want to go home. And so I would go to the library after school and I would sit there. And uh, so they knew me. They liked me. So they would order whatever. I wore, and they would just kind of look at each other, you know, kind of with twinkle in their eye, you know, kind of order <laughs> stuff for me. Um, and if you go now, I don't know, you should have a little little card and a little jacket you would pull out and you could see who ordered what, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure my name is on Wild Stuff because that was a that was a really a great place for me, built that library. Um, and so I so I knew I couldn't major in journalism. I knew enough not to know that. Couldn't write what I wanted to write. So when I went for registration, there was one black professor there. And she was a social work professor, Jeanette Jennings, who had uh, gotten her MSW at Tulane, gotten her bachelor's at Jackson State, who was from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And she was probably 26 at the time. But, you know, I'm 16. I'm thinking she's much older. <laughs> and so she was sitting, you know, they used to have registration in the gym. Uh, when I started college and they would have all the different departments and the different professors and you go and register for your classes there. It was a big two-day, three-day thing. You saw professors, too. I don't yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. So she was the only black one, so I went, and that's how I decided I was going to major in social work. 
It's the truth. So I majored in social work. Um, and JJ, we called her JJ, you know, she lived on campus in faculty housing. She would leave her door open for all the students. And she really became the go-to person because there were 200 black students um, on a campus with a student body of 12,000. Yeah. And yeah. so we all knew each other. After college, Marianne, like a lot of college graduates, tried out a few different jobs, trying to figure out what she wanted to do. She first moved to an army base in Kentucky to live with her aunt and uncle, where she worked at a daycare center, and later she moved to Jackson. She had just started working for a social services organization called the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives when her life turned upside down. Her mother got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and Marianne had to stop working to take care of her. When she died, Marianne became the legal guardian for four of her younger siblings. She worked three jobs to support them, becoming a paralegal for legal services, bought a house, and managed to make a life for her family in Jackson. As the kids grew up and headed off to college themselves, she began to set her sights on a new city, Atlanta. When the youngest uh, sibling graduated and I drove her to Alcorn, I drove here. I moved here on September 25th, 1988. Okay, so why Atlanta? What made you say you like chasing a woman? Chasing a woman. Um, when I was coming up, there was a gay guy. He was a hairdresser in the neighborhood named Fisher. And all, everybody would, um, all the kids would go to Fisher for him to babysit. And they were, I never heard anything negative about Fisher. He was just a part member of the community. Oh, Fisher, keep the kids. We're going to go downtown. Okay. I mean, mm. it was just never any, Fisher was a part of the community. But nobody ever talked about it. I just never, you know, people, you know, in my community, nobody talked about sexuality. They didn't talk about sexual orientation. They didn't talk about any of that. Uh, they did. I don't remember. Even in college, there were a lot of gay guys in college. There were, but nobody ever talked about. I don't remember anybody talking about anything. So when I was 19, when I was at the Army Base, when I was the first time that I really had an opportunity to just stop. Since I was 12, I've been boom, 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 just doing it and going, going, going. You know, that was the first time, really, Lorraine, I had an opportunity to just stop. I'm on an army base. I'm working at daycare center. That's not really engaging me intellectually. I'm not trying to organize the daycare center, to, you know, for higher wages living. I'm not, you know, I'm just going to the, the, uh, the library on on base. So I was able to read and write and think and just really spend some time with myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, the realization I was a lesbian, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm a lesbian, you know? I remember writing this 20 page letter to my best friend at the time who was in Mississippi telling me, she was a lawyer telling her, not this one, but another, telling her that I believe that I was bisexual, you know? And she wrote me back and said, so we, we could have told you that. So everybody, because I just never had any connection with men, I guess. So when I came to Atlanta, I didn't know about too much that was going on. I knew about I knew I wanted to find out where the black lesbians were uh, because I never had been a part of a black lesbian community. 
I really hadn't been part of a lesbian community, period. Although I had slightly because I'd gone to, I was dating somebody in Birmingham and those lesbians there had second Sunday. So every second Sunday they would get together and I would go to that. They were mostly uh, white lesbians. They were may, may, let's say if they had a potluck on second Sunday and there were 25 lesbians, there may be three black lesbians. Um, so I, I never really seen just a whole bunch of um, black lesbians. Um, although when I was still in Jackson, I did come to Atlanta uh, because there was some kind of uh, women's what was it? What was that? It, Spelman. Um, they had a national women's conference, mm. and I came to that. And Marlene Johnson was doing a workshop on lesbianism, black lesbians. And I remember I could not wait to go yeah. to that workshop <laughs> <laughs> because that was my first opportunity, literally, to be in the room. And I remember being in the room, and of course, black lesbians came to that workshop. And it was the first time wow. that I was in the room with black lesbians, period. And I remember being so emotionally full feeling this visceral and this, this palatable connection, uh, just feeling of something that I never quite felt before. And, you know, that day in that room, uh, it was as though the melding of everything I'd read about and, you know, listened to uh, on radio and on tape came together. Um, and it was a very heavy feeling emotionally. Uh, it just felt quite like nothing. I, I really kind of felt like I had come home to be in that room. I felt like for the first time I was able to be myself. I don't think I really gave voice to anything that day, but I felt like as though I could and I would be safe. After chasing a woman to Atlanta, an Emory grad student, Marianne made herself a new life here in Georgia. That woman, whom she was with for four years, was white, and Marianne found that being in an interracial lesbian relationship was difficult to reconcile with the black nationalism and black culture she'd been raised in. Once in Atlanta, she really wanted to connect with black lesbians, but she worried they would be skeptical of her interracial relationship. For a while, she didn't have anywhere or anyone to talk to about this conflict. But then she heard about ZAMI, an organization for black lesbians that had sprung out of AALGA, or ALGA, Atlanta's African-American Lesbian Gay Alliance. Now, this is a little confusing because Marianne founded ZAMI Nobla, an organization for older black lesbians that grew out of ZAMI. But ZAMI existed before Marianne got to Atlanta. Here she explains a bit about that history. There was a second iteration. Of, oh, okay. So the first uh, iteration was started by Iris Rafi. Who? Iris Rafi, okay. who lives here in East Point. Um, because it's my understanding that uh, they had ALGA, and ALGA started to be overrun with testosterone, and the men were trying to take over. And so the women decided that they would form their own organization. Mm -hmm. And so they did that. 
and but they were still a part of ALGA, but they had their own organization. Yeah, okay. And then they had some dissension because there were black lesbians who wanted to bring in their white partners and other partners of color. And there were women who said, no, we want this to remain a black organization, black lesbian organization. And so they could not... Uh, come to any kind of reconciliation around that. So they just, everybody just took their toys and went home. Iris, meanwhile, went to Germany and she was a student at Spelman and she went to Germany and she met Audrey Lord. And it was when Zami, a new, uh, new spelling of my name was out. So Iris came back and called up those black, because she was, she, was she was in a camp where she just wanted to be all black lesbians. She was in that camp. So she called them up and said, let's come over to, come over to my house. She was in East Point and let's just uh, start a new organization. And they called it Zami. And that's how Zami was started. So when I came, uh, somebody else was running it. Okay. I was trying to connect with them, and I was connecting with them. But they were not as political as I wanted them to be, because I was political, right? And so, and they were very closeted, and they were meeting at Kara's, maybe, sporadically. And so I became involved, but not really. I was kind of on the fringes. Uh, I had parties in my house at Grand Park, but I was kind of fringes. So Lisa Moore... Uh, does your mama know the publisher Redbone Press? You know Lisa oh, Moore okay, okay. Um, and Angel uh, Rashad, who is now a professor uh, in North Carolina State. The three of us would get together and do the newsletter for Zami. That's what we did. That was our contribution. Okay. So that we were meeting in people's homes, um, and then Iris and I decided that we were going to. Uh, reinvigorate the organization. We were going to be very out, very visible, very political. Uh, and so we did. And so we kind of had a truce with some of the women that we would be the face of the organization. Okay, gotcha. And they would be behind us, supporting us, because mm -hmm. folks were, you know, they fear for their safety, their right. jobs, their employment, their family relationships, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we did not, so that's what happened. And so, once we became involved, it never went back into hiatus again. We just continued to evolve and grow the and organization. And when was that? Was, do you remember what year that I was? do, I do, because in 95 is when I started the Order Lord Scholarship Fund. So, I would say 92... 93, 94, 90, yeah, early 90s. And so we were very vibrant, very active, doing a lot of things at the time. Um, really wanted to, it was very important for us to continue to create visibility with black lesbians, um, to be politicized, um, to kind of push our way to the table. As part of ZAMI, Marianne was tireless. She wrote a newsletter, hosted film screenings, brought in filmmakers and poets and activists to speak. ZAMI developed a reputation as being extremely literary. Some said too literary. But Marianne knew that what they were doing was important. They were creating a space for black lesbians to be proudly and unapologetically themselves. Marianne's Audre Lorde scholarship gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to out LGBTQ students of color all over the world. They hosted dinner parties with other lesbians of color, founded a gay students group at Spelman College, they founded a health initiative, they hosted basketball tournaments to raise money, they hosted the first drag king show in the city during Black Gay Pride, and as a feminist organization, they told performers their songs couldn't be degrading to women. People did not like that, but Marianne said they were not only black lesbians, they were feminist black lesbians, and that was never going to change.
Marianne had joined Zami in her 30s and grown it into a thriving organization, but she had grown too, as heard her community. In the early 2000s, she began hungering for a new kind of community, one where she could foster connections as she got older. As I mentioned earlier, I've always been involved with you know, old women, elderly women, aging women. Um, I've always been drawn to uh, trying to advocate for uh, a better quality of life uh, for old people generally. Uh, I've always been in, around them and with them and gained so much wisdom and loved hearing the stories and just kind of envisioned myself uh, as an old woman at 100 years old, uh, still being vibrant. And I think that's because uh, my grandmother died 10 days from her 100th birthday. Wow. Uh, my Aunt Sarah, her youngest sister, is 91 now, still lucid. My grandmother was very lucid. Uh, so there's longevity in my family, certainly. And uh, I don't see old and aging as something that's negative, or I don't see it as um, a derogatory word or term or, or, or way of living or being. And so I've always wanted to have an organization that grew with me as I grew older. And so in 2010, uh, I was really tired and, um, you know, was talking to some folk about continuing on with Zami and, and that was not happening. And so I decided that I was going to stop myself. Um, and so I did. And I was looking around to start the next chapter, the next organization that had to do with aging. And so we came, I came up with the National Organization of Black Lesbians on Aging, Zami Nobla. Mm -hmm. And so uh, everybody liked that. And uh, when you look around one day and all the women who had been involved with Zami for 20 years are aging, then I think that uh, one needs to have the foresight to meet people where they are and to organize around that part of our life intentionally and to figure out you know, how we're going to create a space for ourselves proactively uh, and build a life that we want to have some agency around. And so that was really part of the motivation and part of the impetus and part of my thinking about that. Uh, I think it's important to develop uh, this whole conscious aging um, to develop this whole p new paradigm of aging that I don't think we've ever consciously even thought about. We don't have discussions about. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's important to me personally and to us as an organization that um, we understand that we can build a community together with each other as we age, that we don't have to isolate ourselves, mm -hmm. that once we reach a certain age, we don't have to go in and not come back out, that we are as much a part of this community yeah. today as we were 20 years ago. We are, part, we, are in, in, we are necessary and vital to continuing to build this community. Right. Um, and I think that the missing piece is, is that we don't know that. We don't believe that. Because society has taught us to believe that 
you know, when you get older, that you are no longer productive, that you are no longer a valuable member. You don't you can no longer contribute um, that you are now in uh, uh, the 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 dawning of your life. You're now uh, at the point where you are uh, disintegrating. Uh, they are equating old with, uh, you know, with, with decrepit and with sickness and with illness. And so we're just trying to dismantle that paradigm. And I think it's important, first of all, for us to start telling people our age. You know, this is what 61 looks like. This is what 72 looks like. This is what 80 looks like. You know, we have to create these these models ourselves. We have to be the ones to do this. We can't stand idly by when people say, oh, you don't look 50. Say, oh, well, thank you. But no, I do look 50. This is what 50 looks like. Mm-hmm. This is what 80 looks like. And I'm proud <laughs> that this is what, that I'm 80, that I'm, I'm here talking to you, that I'm out marching, that I'm teaching. There are all kinds of ways to be activists. I think that that's important for people to understand. Marianne is still actively involved in Zami Nobla, which offers a host of events, programming, and community opportunities for aging lesbians of color. She and her partner, Angela Denise Davis, have been together for many years and are both involved in a great deal of community activism through Zami Nobla and other organizations. In 2017, Zami Nobla purchased the Biggers House in Northwest Atlanta, which provides permanent, safe, and accessible housing for black lesbians over the age of 55. They've also built community gardens on the property to share with residents, neighbors, and friends. It's the first project of its kind in the country. Marianne has so many more stories that we couldn't share here. She's achieved so much in her life, created so many life-giving projects, and touched the lives of countless people across the Southeast. I think one of the most inspiring things about Marianne's life is how her activism has continued to evolve as she has grown and changed. From writing for a civil rights newsletter as a teenager, to doing legal work for poor clients in Jackson, to starting Zami Nobla and directing street-based research on HIV as a public health researcher, everywhere she's gone, she's found ways to support her community. She's never stopped learning and changing, and that, to me, is a sign of a life well lived. We're so grateful to have Marianne as part of the Out Down South project, and to have Zami Nobla here in Atlanta. Thanks for listening to Out Down South. You can find all our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this story and you believe in preserving and sharing Southern LGBTQ plus history, we invite you to support the Out Down South podcast and the rest of the work we are doing with the Atlanta LGBTQ plus history project by going to our website at Atlanta LGBTQ history project.org and clicking the donate button. Out Down South is created by me, Rachel Garbus, and my co-founder and co-producer, Sam Landis. Our music is by Jonathan Thomas Mayoko. We are grateful to be supported by a grant from Georgia Humanities and our project partners, Wussy Mag, and the Special Collections and Archives at Georgia State University Library, where all the oral histories from this project will be archived. Our Out Down South exhibit is currently up at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You can learn more about that exhibit by visiting atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org slash exhibit. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other queer history lovers find us. If you didn't like it, don't worry about it. You can find all our episodes and more information about the project on our website at atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org. Until next time, bye y'all.